Hearts, I want to begin our talk this morning with a bit of a survey. Well, no, not really a survey, a trivia question is probably a better way to, to do it. I'm curious, how many of you would know the answer? If you were to go home today and you were to get on Google and type in, who is the most generous person in the world? What do you think results you would get? Do you, any guesses? Any names? James thinks that he's the most generous person in the world. Okay, that's a, I might take issue with that one. Um, any other guesses? Bill Gates. You're right. Bill Gates would be, I saw you like trying to get out there and get on Google already. You don't need to do that in church, right? But um, yeah, Bill Gates. It, it was really interesting. I was, I was searching this this week and came across an article uh, in Business Insider that in particular uh, I kind of was intrigued by because of the way in which it documented the 20 most generous people in, in the world. Now, this was written in 2015, and so some of these numbers are probably a little bit different now, but Bill Gates was at the top of the list, and the reason I like this article is because it didn't just talk about the amount of money that had been given, but it also talked about um, the overall net worth of these individuals as well as the percentage of what they had given to charitable giving as it compares to their net worth. So, for example, Bill Gates, according to this article in 2015, had given $27 billion to charity, all right? 27 billion, that's fairly remarkable. Now, that was about uh, 32% of his overall net worth, which comes in at around 84 billion. Poor guy, right? So, so it's interesting, you could read through this list and you could see that a majority of these people gave somewhere in between this kind of 25, even 75%, but there were also some extremes that, that stood out to the page. Like on the lower end, uh, the lowest percentage was none other than Mark Zuckerberg. All right, I'm just going to leave it at that. No commentary on that. Uh, gave $1 billion, which was 4% of his uh, net worth of about $40 billion. But one of the ones that leapt off the page at me was a guy by the name of Charles Francis Feeney, okay, also known as Chuck Feeney. And he gave a percentage of 420,000%. If you're sitting there and you're wondering how that works, that means he's given away way more than he's kept for himself. Uh, he had given away, it, by the time of the writing of this article, it was about $6 billion. Now I think it's about $8 billion. And now his net worth is about $1.5 million. And, and so I, I had to read up on this guy. They, they refer to him as the James Bond of philanthropy uh, because he gives so much away and oftentimes so indiscreetly. And so through the course of his wealth, he, he got wealthy through uh, duty-free shopping and kind of helping develop that concept. And through the course of his, his fortune, he had this conviction that he wanted to give it all away during the time that he was alive. And so he, he has this phrase of like giving while living. And he talks about how he just thinks it's the right thing to do, talks about the example that his mom was growing up and how she was a nurse and always helping other people. And so he's just, he's just given away all of his fortune. And so it's interesting in this article that I found about him, they, they said here he is, he's in his 80s, he has a rented apartment in San Francisco, uh, he doesn't own it, owns no car, no luxuries. Um, he, he has nothing on the wall that documents how much he's given away over time. And they said during the time of the interview, he's wearing this cardigan sweater that has a hole in it and is wearing a plastic watch that was maybe $15. I loved it. I, it was such a fascinating concept, which reminded me about another story that I came across uh, about Julia Wise and Jeff Kaufman. <clears throat> now, Julia Wise and Jeff Kaufman had a story featured <clears throat> around this same time, 2015, 2016, and what, what stood out to them is they're not billionaires. Uh, they're, they're not doing poorly for themselves. Their, their combined salary is around $245,000 a year. But the reason there were stories written about them is that they had decided to live on just 6% of their income, $15,000 a year. Right? So all these other billionaires we talk about, we say, well, they still have billions and millions of dollars left over. Well, they, they chose to live on 
$15,000, about 6%. And, and so they said, well, where did the rest of it go? Well, 22% went to taxes, 32% they put away in savings, but 40% they gave to charities. And part of this is because of their conviction. They said, we feel like you can make the world a better place if you, if you give it to these charities. Now, as, as amazing as that is and commendable as it is to, to show us that you can live minimally, it's not like they were just a young couple. They have a young family and they have young girls and they wanted to lead by example there. But, but we can also acknowledge that you know, $245,000 a year is still the top 10% of U.S. households. And, and setting aside 32, 32% and savings is still a pretty nice little comfort, right, that you can have that most of Americans don't have. And so, but it still gives you kind of an interesting picture of how they've approached living. I've got one more story I want to share with you this morning. Uh, let's show up in this next picture. Anybody know what this is? Anyone? Lucky Charms, right, good job. Uh, Lucky Charms, it's the marshmallows from Lucky Charms. It's actually more than that. You know what it is? It's a gift. It's a Christmas gift. So in December of this year, 2018, a teacher up in Kennewick, Washington, by the name of Rachel Uritsky Pratt, posted this picture on Instagram that went viral. She is a teacher at a low-income school. <clears throat> it was the week before winter break, and she said she had walked into her class and had all these traditional gifts on her desk, gifts of chocolates, gifts of handmade notes, and some jewelry, but what stood out amongst all of them was this bag of Lucky Charms. And what she discovered was that this was from one of her students who didn't have any money to buy her a gift, but so desperately wanted to give a gift to her teacher that that morning, once she was at school, she took her Lucky Charms, picked out the marshmallows, which is the best part of the Lucky Charms, I might add, got the plastic bag that contains the plasticware, right, the spoon and the, and the knife, took those out, put the charms in and used it as wrapping paper and gave it to her. If that doesn't touch your heart, you're dead inside, okay? I saw that and I was like, oh my goodness, right? And so I'm, I'm presenting all these stories to you because there are all these different examples of generosity. And, and they show that there are different ways in which we often measure or define generosity. Is it the billions that's given, right, like, like a Bill Gates? Is it the, the people that go without, like Julia and Jeff and, and Chuck Feeney? Or is it just the simplest gift of somebody that doesn't really have much to give to begin with? Now, Jesus challenges us in our understanding of generosity, doesn't he? Mark chapter 12, you can find this short little story of Jesus sitting across the way, opposite of the side of where they would put their, the offerings in the temple treasury. And it says he's, he's sitting there and he's watching as people walk by and he says that there's many wealthy people that come by that put in large amounts of money, but then all of a sudden he sees a widow come by that puts in two simple copper coins worth maybe just a few cents. And, and I can't help but picture Jesus like getting excited. As he calls his disciples over, he's like, guys, 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 come here, come here. You see her? She gave more than anyone. Right? All these other people, they gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had to live on. It's a fascinating story. Now notice, Jesus doesn't condemn the larger gifts. Right? He, he doesn't stand in judgment over those. Right? But what he does is he recategorizes how we might think about generosity, what it's like to give out of poverty rather than giving out of wealth. And so he challenges our perception of generosity. And so when you think about these examples that I offer to you this morning, a question that I want to present to you is what would you say is the most radical expression of generosity? Well, if, if I were to submit an answer to that, 
I wouldn't point us to the billions from Bill Gates or the extreme going without in the other examples. I'd probably say, well, look at this student who gave her lucky charms to her teacher. That seems to be the most radical. And yet that's not what we find when we search on Google, is it? And so it's important for us to think through how do we define generosity? And how do we see these things more clearly? And part of what I love about this, this representation of these lucky charms is that what's, what it's also indicative of that we don't always see with some of these other examples is that it was founded in a relationship, right? Here was a student that had a love for a teacher, had a desperate desire to show her appreciation for this teacher and what she meant to her to say thank you. And what we see is that in that story, there's this radical expression of generosity that is rooted in radical love. And that's the concept that is going to take us to the passage that we have today. Radical generosity rooted in radical love. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to continue in our series on uh, discipleship, the devoted life. We, we've referred to the title here as stories, the goal of discipleship. And part of what we've been putting in front of you week after week is that true discipleship is going to lead to transformation. We should have stories of transformation in your life, stories in tr of transformation that's occurring in the lives of others as we seek to make disciples, right? And so as we see these things play out, part of what we're going to see is that some of that transformation that we're going to look at today leads to generosity, but we're going to connect it to so much of what we talked about last week, which was biblical deep-seated community, and see how radical generosity comes out of radical love. So if you have your Bibles, let's read again, starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. <clears throat> it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Verse 45 is our focus verse today. They sold property and possessions to give, <clears throat> excuse me, to give to anyone who had need. Okay. Uh, so some context to this. If, if you are new with this today, we actually went through this passage in Acts back in the spring, and, and we did so with a different approach. We wanted to be a little bit more expositional in, in nature. We looked at it a little bit more just concretely with the text, looking at the syntax, the grammar. Um, and now we're going back through it again in the fall, and we're putting more of an emphasis on application to what does this stuff look like for us here. And so you get to verse 45, and you read about how they're selling their possessions and their property, and it's an obvious verse about generosity. Now, as we get back into this text today, let me just offer a reminder that I've, I've been pastor here for just shy of three years. It'll be three years in November. And I don't know exactly how many, but probably in the neighborhood of two or three times have I dedicated a sermon to, to a full exposition of money, right? What the Bible says about money, how we're supposed to view it how we're supposed to look towards materialism, what does tithing look like, all those sorts of questions. And because we've already gone through that, I don't feel compelled to go into those details again today. But if you have questions about that, and you want to know some of what we've said concerning those issues before, I'd encourage you, you can go online, you can find our sermon archive, you can search generosity, something along those lines, and I'm sure hopefully something comes up. And, and you can go back and look at those. I, I don't want to go into those details today. But before we get into how we're going to attack this verse this morning, let me at least offer a few reminders that I hope you've heard 
in previous conversations about our culture that we want to foster here when it comes to generosity and giving. Right? So, so one thing I want to remind you of, um, we fully believe that the gospel does not live and die by silver and gold. Right? So, so there are too many examples in the scripture of Jesus saying, take nothing with you. Sell everything you own. Right? So we are not a church that's going to sit there and say, well, we need more money to be effective in ministry. Wrong. The gospel is sufficient. Okay, so that's, that's number one. Number two, we are not after a formula nor a number. Right? It's very easy for churches to reduce your responsibility of giving to some sort of a percentage. Give 10%, give 20%, whatever it is. That is not what we're after. We talk about those things. We don't pretend like they don't exist. But what we're after is a posture. We're after a heart. That when we search the scriptures, what we see more consistently taught is the heart behind giving. And what we see is everyone should give sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully. So that's what we talk about. Man, are, are you giving sacrificially and generously and cheerfully? That's what we want to pursue. Number three, we've talked before about how we're going to be content with what God has given us here at this church. We are in a beautiful facility, a beautiful building. Does it need some updates? Yes, absolutely. This is not a church where you're going to walk in and have the latest and the greatest, and I'm okay with that. All right? And so I have told you before, I don't have it in my heart or in my mind to come before you at any point in the future and say, hey, we're going to build a new sanctuary or a new building. We have one, and it's good, and it's sufficient. So we're going to be content with what God has given us. We're also going to see giving and money as an act of worship. Right? A lot of times we feel like this is a taboo subject. And that society, that's not the Bible that kicks that filter into gear. Right? Well, we shouldn't talk about these things. This is a private issue. It's a personal matter. Wrong. You cannot read the Bible and not talk about money and generosity. You can't because it's worship. It's a manifestation of how we surrender ourselves to God. And so we're going to talk about it as an act of worship. And then that leads me to the last thing I want to remind you of that hopefully you've gathered in my tenure here is that the vision that we're leaning into and trying to step into is that we want to be a church that's known for its generosity, right? We want to be known more for what we've given away rather than what we've accumulated for ourselves, right? That's the direction that we want to go. So keep those things in mind as we have this conversation today. As we approach 245 in the book of Acts, what I want us to do is do a quick review of kind of what's being said here on this particular verse and then land it in terms of application for us as a church. So the first thing we need to look at are these words, property and possessions, and I mentioned this a little bit last time. When you see the word property, that's pretty significant because in this particular time, not a lot of people owned property. If you owned property at this point in the early church, you were wealthy. And so, number one, this tells us a little bit about the breadth of the gospel and who it's reaching. It's not just for the poor. It's not just for the marginalized. It was for everyone. And yet it was impacting people in such a significant way that they were taking some of their greatest comforts some of their greatest symbols of status, and they were saying, I don't need this because I have Christ, and I'm going to surrender this to help meet the needs of others. And yet we also see that the word possessions targets everyone. This was not just a responsibility for those that had means. Everyone was looking at what do I own? What, what can I surrender to help give and meet other people's needs? Right? And so you see this, this broad approach, and it's that word need that I think really kind of drives their understanding and their mentality, right? Because it's, it's whatever is lacking. It's taking a look and saying, what should be? And I love this mentality. So what they're doing is, is they're looking at everything that God has given them, everything that they own, and they're saying, what else is missing? 
What, what's lacking in the community around me? What is, what is wrong with this world? And how can I take what God has given me to help make it right? That was their mentality that was driving their generosity. Is it ours? Now, I'll be the first to confess that more often than not, the answer is no. See, if you're like me, my experience is, is that a lot of times we determine our generous, generosity based on what's left over, not what all has been given. Right? So it typically works this way. We, we get a paycheck of some sort, and we say, okay, based on this income, here is my standard of living. I can buy this kind of house. I can afford this kind of car. Uh, these sorts of utilities, these sorts of items, these sorts of luxuries. And I'm going to have these sorts of activities for my children, these sorts of plans for vacations, retirement, all this stuff. And then this is what I have left over, so I'll be generous with this. That's how I tend typically kind of default into with generosity. And what makes that challenging is then life happens. And then you have medical bills, and you have student loans, and you have uh, car trouble. And then all of a sudden you go, man, I just got a little bit less, but I still have this to give. What they were doing is they were saying, I have all of it. What can I give to surrender to other people's needs? How can I take all of this to help meet the needs of the world around us? It was a radical expression of generosity. And it's one that should challenge us. Because right? a lot of times our expressions of generosity are more comfortable than they are radical. Now you read verse 45, and if you're like me, you eventually get that troubling question. Is this mandatory? Right? Like you read it and you're like, so like, do I need to go home today and sell my house? Do we need to sell this church? Like, is that what's going on here? And, and I've asked that question. I hope you have too. And it's a question worth asking. I, I'll, I'll refer to John Stott's commentary, The Message of Acts, uh, as a guide to help answer that. And he points out, look, there have been numerous examples of church history, the people that have said, well, maybe, yeah. And, and they have committed themselves. They've, they have joined different communities where the initiation was truly to sell everything you own and merge it with everyone else and to live in poverty. And he points out that, that there are times where Jesus does call people to live in that level of poverty. However, there is nothing explicit in the scriptures, nothing explicit in this passage or in others that would say it is mandatory, nothing that would prohibit a believer from owning property. Right? You can't say that. And the fact that the tenses of these verbs are imperfect suggests that they are occasional and not permanent, not once and for all. So he says, there, there's no way that you can make some sort of universal permanent claim that every believer should have to sell all their property. Okay, you can't do that. Now, before you give a sigh of relief and go, whew, these verses are still there to challenge us, right? And, and you can't read the scriptures without seeing this undeniable call to generosity, right? First John 3, 17, paraphrasing says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them, how can you say the love of God is in you, right? I mean, it, it is throughout the scriptures that we are called to live a life of radical generosity, right? Now, the challenge, though, that we can have when we read a passage like this is we can isolate verse 45 and just talk about generosity as if it's a list of all these things that make up the early church. Well, they, they were learning, they were fellowshipping, they were breaking bread, and oh, they were generous, and, and we can't take it out of its context. That's the mistake, and that's what I want to guide us into today, is we have to remember the verses that precede and follow this verse. Last week, we talked extensively about radical, loving community, giving to one another. The believers had everything in common. And then you see this expression of that sort of 
liveliness and togetherness that plays out in the following verses. And that's where we see this marker of generosity. And that's where we see that this radical expression of generosity is actually rooted in radical love. And so, so, so to bring this point into greater clarity, I want to refer to a quote <clears throat> that was written by William James Jennings, who is another great uh, writer and offers a wonderful commentary on the book of Acts. <clears throat> and he brings it so eloquently to our attention. Right, here's what he says. I'm going to break this down for you. He says, it's not a new thing that people would offer up their possessions to a noble or religious cause. Right? And so we've already made that point, even with just the examples I made at the beginning of the message. Right? You can point to Bill Gates. You can point to all these different examples of people that are going to be motivated by civil rights, education, poverty, and they're going to be willing to express a form of generosity. That, that's not new. That's not new in this passage. Something else is new that he points out. A different order of sacrifice is being performed here, one that reaches back to the very beginnings of Israel. Their God does not need possessions and has never been impressed by their donation. The divine one wants people and draws us into that wanting. I love that. It's a reminder that God's sitting there and he's going, I don't need your stuff. I don't need your silver and gold. Right? There is no donation that God steps back and goes, whoa, impressive. He's not blown away by a dollar amount. He doesn't need it. What God wants is hearts and souls. He wants people, and he draws us into that wanting. That's what we desire, right? That when we find the gospel, it draws us to a radical love for the neighbor and for each other. And so he elaborates on this. He says, a new kind of giving is exposed at this moment, one that binds bodies together as the first reciprocal donation where the followers will give themselves to one another and the possessions will follow. So what's taking place here is that they're hearing the gospel and they say, what do we need to do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And they say, yes. And they begin to live out this parable where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like when you find this treasure and the person goes and buries it in a field and then goes home, sells everything they can so that they can go back and purchase the field. They give everything to Christ. They see that that is the most valuable. And once they do that, they see their hearts transformed to a radical love for the neighbor. And they come alongside one another and they join together in this beautiful community, in this beautiful relationship, not just for those that believe like them, but for everyone around them. And they say, this is what I'm committed to, and then possessions follow. It doesn't begin with possessions. It's a manifestation of this commitment, right? And so then, this is where uh, Jennings really brings it to such a beautiful, poetic conclusion. He says, thus, anything they had that might be used to bring people into sight and sound of the incarnate life. Anything they had that might be used to draw people to life together in life itself and away from death and in the reign of poverty, hunger, and despair, such things were subject to being given up to God. I love it. That was their mentality. Do I have anything that can be used to help bring someone else into the closer sight and sound of the incarnate life? Do I have anything that can help bring people into life together and away from death? Anything in my possession that can help end the reign of poverty and hunger and despair? Anything that fits that category is subject to being to be up to God. It's radical generosity rooted in radical love. And so my question for us this morning, church, is how do we live that out? What does that look like for us as a church and as individuals? And, and that's the progression that I want to go through. I want to talk first as a church family, and then I want to land this and conclude with a 
perspective from an individual nature. All right, and so in order to talk about this as a church family, we need to just talk about context in terms of who we are as a church. So I want you to hang with me because I need to talk to you a little bit about budget and giving and some of those things, but my hope is that by the end of it, we, we see it for a much broader, more complete picture, okay? So historically, at University Baptist Church, our annual budget has come in somewhere around a million dollars, just north of about a million dollars, typically, right? And, and I will tell you that in the last three years that I've been here, we've seen some incredible signs of generosity from the congregation. Uh, just a couple of things that I'd love to point out, because I want to start with a word of thank you to this church family. Uh, last year, I've said this before, but I don't know if everyone remembers it. Last year, um, our contributions and the work of this church and its generosity brought in more giving to this church than has happened in the last 10 years. So thank you. Good job, church. That's amazing. Uh, and then we're seeing those trends continue. Uh, this summer, which is typically a lean season in a church's life, has brought in more money and contributions and giving than in the last 10 years in the life of our church. Our world mission offering, all right, our world mission offering that is a way for us to give to all of our missional efforts, at least since I've been here, has been something that has been hard to hit that goal. We've already reached that goal and eclipsed it this year. So as the pastor, it would be irresponsible and impolite for me to not at least start this conversation by saying, thank you, and letting me tell you I'm incredibly encouraged by the sacrificial, cheerful, and generous nature that already exists in this church. But I'll also stand before you having to share with you a difficult reality that we currently face. And, and many of you are aware of this, but I don't know that I've ever allotted time on a Sunday morning to talk about it, so I, I need to a little bit today. As, as positive as those trends are, as of the end of July, we were about $102,000 behind income to expenses. Okay, and, and so that's not $102,000 behind budget. That's income to expenses. We have spent $102,000 more than we brought in. Okay, um, that'd be like you coming home and looking at your bills and saying, oh my gosh, I owe thousands of dollars more than what my revenue is for this month. It's a, it's a difficult situation, okay? And so the question has to be, well, why? Why is that the case? Let me assure you, we haven't bought a private jet, right? We, we haven't just been going crazy with any sort of luxury. Uh, let me tell you the story, briefly. 2016, um, a hailstorm comes through Fort Worth and damages the roof of our church, as it did many other properties in this area. And so we went through the steps that any other home or organization would go through. We engaged with our insurance company, set up a contract with a roofer, and we began to repair our roof. We had numerous delays for a variety of reasons because it's construction, you know, because it's roof repair. And so we go through all these things, and about 10 or 11 months into it, we realize that because our building is older, there's a lot of work that's going to be required to get our building up to city code. And without going into details, um, what I'll just label as mismanagement took place, and I would tell you that in my view, um, we were the victims. That's what I would say. I would say it was not of any fault or negligence of our own. I do not believe um, we were taken advantage of with malicious intent or even, even maybe intentional intent, but there's no doubt it was a very unfortunate situation that we were still trying to seek resolution on with our insurance company. And it ended up meaning that our roof cost three times what it was supposed to cost. We were not given all the money from our insurance policy, and so it left us with a $750,000 debt. All right? And so we were just about to be debt-free. We had like one final debt payment. And when we realized this reality, this was tricky, because we're not a church that just has 
endless banks accounts filled with millions of dollars where we could go, oh, okay, well, we'll cover that. $750,000. We had to take out a loan just to get the roof to be completed. Okay? And so all of a sudden, we're faced with this difficult reality. And we sit there and we go, well, how are we going to handle this? And we've explored. Finance Committee has explored every option. We've, we've listed property that we had visions for ministry that we're willing to sell now. We're, we're trying to do everything we can to help soften the weight of this responsibility. But we agreed to the terms of the loan. We worked it into our budget. And so now that basically means that we're paying about $122,000 a year in new expenses. That's why we're behind. Is, is encu- as encouraging as your generosity has been, it doesn't change our current challenging situation. And so the question is, what do we do about it? Well, my proposal is we all write Bill Gates, okay? <laughs> Kidding, sort of. I mean, if you, if you do, I'm not going to stop you. Let me just put it that way, okay? So what are we going to do? What do you do about this? Well, let, let me offer a proposal that I think helps address our current reality, but it helps also continue to lead us into the vision and, and encourage the culture that's already been established here. Uh, many of you also know that this is our 90th anniversary as a church. We get to celebrate 90 years as a church family, which has been remarkable, and we've commemorated this milestone throughout the year, and we continue to do so. And one of the things that we talked about months ago is that we wanted to have a unique campaign, a giving campaign that we were referring to as 90 and 90, right, where we wanted to essentially raise $180,000 Right, just 180,000, and, and take 90 of it to help strengthen some things within the walls of the church, but then take 90 of it and bless things beyond the walls of the church. And part of that was because we want to be a church that's known for its generosity. And we want to establish a precedent that if we ever raise money for ourselves, we're going to match it to give away. All right? And so that's where the goal came from. And we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get new flooring in the first floor and help update Harris Hall because the wallpaper is literally peeling off the wall. Right, that's what we're going to do for within the church. And then beyond it, we want to give to our community. No strings attached. We just want to give it away. And so we prayed through it. We've talked about it. We're giving to Traffic 911 that helps combat human trafficking. We're going to give a portion of it to Gladney, who works with foster care and adoption. We're going to give a portion of it to Seminary Hills that you've already heard talked about today so that we can help education. We're just going to give it away. Right? And so that's been our goal. And I said, okay, everybody prepare. October is when we're going to make this gift, and we're going to try to raise $180,000. Okay? So that was the original vision. We're going to tweak it ever so slightly. Okay? Here's what we're not changing. It's still 180000 Still our goal. Here's what we're not changing. We're still giving to the community, and we're still going to give 90000 to the community. We're not changing that. Okay? What we're going to change is how we allocate that 90000 within the walls. As much as I would love to upgrade our flooring and our fellowship hall, um, we have a debt. And in the same way that I hope most of us would manage our own household, if you have a debt, you're not going to go buy a new car. You're going to take care of your financial responsibilities. So essentially, this shortfall of about $102,000 is a result of these debt payments to the roof. And so we're going to take the $90,000 for within the walls to help address that shortfall. Okay? Now that leads to the second tweak of this approach, which means our fiscal year is from October to September. So if we're going to do this in a way that helps just the overall accounting and best practices, we need to move this up to this month. Now, my hope is that you've been praying through this, you've been preparing, you've been saving, and moving it up a month is not going to be the end of the world. And that for the next two to three weeks, you're able to go ahead and make your contribution to the 90-90 campaign. Right? And I'm going to give you some details as to how we're going to do this here in just a second. But, but my hope is that then by the end of the month, we hit $180,000, 
we help with the shortfall, and then we're able to give the other 90 away. Okay, now, a couple of questions that likely come up. One would be, okay, but Jeremiah, what if we don't get to 180? Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take 90, and we're going to give it away. And whatever we don't have, that's going to be up to the finance committee to wrestle with how do we address the rest of the shortfall. Are there other places that we can find it? Okay. What if we exceed 180? I love the way you're thinking, if that's you. I love it. If we exceed 180, we're going to give it to the finance committee to entrust that decision. We're going to give 90 away. We're going to use 90 to the shortfall. And then finance can decide, hey, we want to use some of the excess to help the shortfall from this year. The original hope was that if we exceeded the goal, we'd set it aside in a fund to give away to the community later. And that could still be an option. right? But, but if we exceed it, that's going to be the options. Finance is going to help steward those, those conversations. Now, um, one of the things that can happen whenever you have a campaign is you feel really shackled to a date. Do we have a deadline for this uh, shortfall? Yes. We, we need to address a shortfall by the end of the month. Okay? Um, but if we don't hit 180 by the end of the month, then, then we're going to be okay with that in the sense that if it takes us a little bit more time to get to that goal, that's okay. I don't want it to drag on forever. But I also don't want us to be shackled uh, with some arbitrary date, especially when we've had to change it in this capacity uh, so quickly. All right? And so, so my hope is that we hit 180 and we don't have to worry about that. My, my original goal was the first 90 is given away, the second 90 is used on us. Because of the timing of these things, I don't know that it will work out that way, but that's definitely our heart behind it. Okay? So a couple of practical things for you. What does this look like for us to achieve it? Um, if you were to take all the giving households that have given to UBC in this fiscal year, it, it would basically work out to being about a $900 gift per household, over and above your tithes and offerings. And we would meet our goal. Now, I, as we often have this kind of conversation, I know many of you out there today say, that cannot hit that. And I understand, that's okay. And others can say, well, I can do more than that. And that's great, too. What are we after? Sacrificial, cheerful, generous. If the right heart's behind it, that's all we care about. All right, but that gives you something to think through. Here are some very important instructions that I have to provide. When you make this contribution, and I would encourage you, you can go ahead and start making it throughout the rest of this month. When you make this contribution, it needs to be designated. Okay, let me say that again. It needs to be designated to 90 and 90. Please do not just give to the general budget. We will not be able to track it. And that will very much complicate things. So put it on your offering envelope. If you use offering envelopes, write it on the memo of your check line. If you're using cash, put it in an envelope, write 90 and 90 on it. If you're given electronically, you can get online. And once you choose your amount, you'll be able to say 90 and 90. That'll be an option that's on there for you. But designate it. Then we'll be able to track it. And then we will reallocate that 90000 back to our shortfall and put it back in the budget by the end of the fiscal year. Does that make sense? Okay. Now... Please, last word of encouragement here. Please don't make this about some monetary value. Please. Please look beyond numbers and budgets and debt payments. Right? Don't make this about generosity. Make this about radical generosity rooted in radical love. See, the problem is that a lot of times we can talk about budgets like, budgets like I've just done, and we, we can do so with such a limited perspective. And we'll start using them as metrics in a church, right? Oh, well, our church is up to $3 million. Things are going great. Ah, oh, you know, we only hit 90% of our budget. Things are kind of hard around here. Oh, man, we, 
We have a surplus this year. Nothing wrong with those comments, but they're limited. Very limited. And I will be the first to admit that my perspective is often limited because I don't know who gives any. I, I don't want to know. I don't have access to those records. I don't want access to those records. So anything short of you walking by me holding up your check going, look at what I did, like I'm not going to know. And I don't want to because I feel like I can lead better as a pastor if I don't know those things. But it does create a limited perspective because I don't know the story behind it. I often don't know the sacrifice. I don't know the motivation. I don't know all the different things that are happening, but I assure you there are numerous stories. And so we have to look beyond numbers and budgets and see the stories that are going on behind it. It'd be so easy for us to have this conversation and say, yeah, it's just a budget. It's just a roof. And I get it. As a former missions pastor, I get it. You don't, you don't have to convince me of that. I, I could easily tell you, yeah, we could shut these doors and never open them again, and we would not cease to be a church because it's the people, not the building. Right? I know that. But please, please don't be so simplistic and reductionistic to think it's just a building, it's just a budget. Because the reality is, it's ours. And it's been here for 90 years because the people that started this church were stirred by the Holy Spirit to have a presence for that campus. And they wanted to have an opportunity to have doors open so that should there ever be a time where a college student comes through this season of life and in this neighborhood, they can wake up, look out their window and actually see a church with its doors open and think to themselves, maybe they have the truth that can set me free. Maybe that's where I can go and we make ourselves available to them. Every time somebody loses a loved one and they're overcome with grief and they need a place to find healing and comfort and warmth and a reminder of the hope of the gospel that takes place here. Every time people fall in love and they want to make a vow before God and before family and friends and say, I do, it happens here. We have families that are not even a part of this church. They're saying, is there some place I can take my children where I know they'll be loved, where I know they'll be cared for? And two days out of the week, they can come here and we say, yes, we love them and we love you. Our own children come here regularly. We have other organizations that come into this place. We have campus ministries like the BSM and SUMO that are literally going to impact hundreds of students in a given week. We have organizations like Buckner that are saying, we're looking for people that are interested in foster care and adoption. Can we use your place to have those conversations? And we say, yes, absolutely. And I realize that we could close our doors and all those things could maybe happen in another place and another time in another setting. But the reality is, is we have it. And we should be willing to do anything we can if it gives somebody the chance to be brought into a closer sight and sound of the incarnate life. And that's what we're going to do. Please don't just see the numbers. Look beyond them. We have children. We have youth. We have college students. We have adults. We have people that are literally going to camp who have never owned a Bible. And we're having a chance to give them one. Saying this is what it contains. Here's the hope. Here's the truth. And we're having those conversations and praying for that sort of transformation. And so please look beyond those numbers. If we only make this a monetary goal, we failed before we've even begun. And so how do we hit it? It starts with each of us on a personal level. And you need to take some time and evaluate the level of generosity that God has placed on your heart. Is it comfortable? Is it radical? What do you see that God has entrusted to you? And how are you stewarding those gifts for the sake of the kingdom? 
Are you willing to give anything if it helps bring people closer to this gospel? Do you have that sort of mentality? It starts with a personal question. I want to close with a story that to me has been very inspiring and one that I hope is inspiring to you. Um, I'm not going to share this individual's name, uh, but though I know that as soon as I mention the story, many of you in here are going to know exactly who I'm talking about. And this is interestingly because a story that has really nothing to do with finances, but still evokes the heart of radical generosity rooted in radical love. A couple months ago, I'm having a conversation with some of the younger guys in our church, and they're talking about a video that they're about to do uh, related to organ donation. And talking about getting some footage and some of those sorts of conversations and what that takes place. And in the midst of that conversation, I hear that one of the individuals has decided and has found out that the person that they're going to be interviewing needs a kidney. And he figured out that he was a match. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to donate my kidney. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, of course you are. Because that's what you do, like all the time. Not like kidneys, but you know what I mean? Like he, he and his family, like they're constantly like, yes, stay here. We'll go get it. And, and it was such an encouraging uh, testimony. And so just recently, uh, I wrote him and I said, hey, why did you do that? Can you give me your perspective? And I want to read you his answer. He said, you know, I came to realize that some people have health and others don't. And it doesn't always seem to have anything to do with them. It seems similar to the man born blind and Jesus' answer about why did this happen. And he says, for God's power and glory to be displayed through it. So in recognizing that I have this healthy body, that I have no real reason to say why I deserve it over someone else, it seemed more likely that God gave it to me to be responsible for and to be open to using it for his love and grace to be illustrated to the world. The ironic thing is that even though now I'm down a kidney, I feel like I have so much more joy in my health because I've used what was given to me to show in a small way what I believe God did for each of us through the cross. I believe everything God has given us is something he's put us responsible over for the purpose of pointing back to him. So in that way, things that we say are quote-unquote blessings are actually better understood to be responsibilities and opportunities. <laughs> radical generosity rooted in radical love. So imagine, church, what would happen if we all embraced that mentality? And we come together and we gather here week after week, and we see the stories that are behind it. We look beyond the numbers, and we look to our left and we look to our right, and we all know that we each share in that conviction that we, as a body of believers, would do anything if it means bringing someone closer into the sight and sound of the incarnate life. We would do anything if it helps bring them into life together or can help end the reign of poverty, hunger, and despair. We would do anything if it brings people closer to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that everything we have is subject to be given to him. Just imagine what God will do and can do through a church like that. That's who we want to be, a church that is defined by radical generosity that is rooted in radical love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that so many times we go through life and we look to claim things as our own and we miss the very freedom that you've offered us. And Father, how that freedom transforms us to a place where we are able to truly come and surrender everything that we have because we know nothing compares to what we have in you. As Paul says, Father, we, we can count it all rubbish. We can count it all as not when compared to the gospel. And so I ask, Father, that you would open our hearts and our minds to love the neighbor, to love this community, 
and to love each other in a way that brings glory to you. Let us not be about numbers. Let us not be about goals, but let us be about the gospel that, yes, impacts our generosity, but more than that, brings people into the sight and sound of Jesus Christ. Use us, Father, and use us mightily for your glory. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.